Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. It was one week ago today that I went to the Foothills Hospital to do a wedding. Does that surprise you that I would go to a hospital to do a wedding? I've been performing them for almost 35 years, but the, it was the most sacred and beautiful wedding that I have ever done. Last June the 6th, Brennan and Chantel from our church gave birth to a beautiful, bouncing baby boy. They called him Isaiah. I've met him. He is so cute. At the exact time that Isaiah was delivered, doctors discovered tumors throughout Chantel's body. Try to imagine with me, if you can, the joy and the pain of that day. Here you had a beautiful boy to join the family, but the realization that there was a disease that could separate the family. For the next 10 months, Chantel went through an excruciating regimen of treatments, which together with the disease just ravaged her body. Again, try to imagine caring for a newborn baby while you're feeling nauseated and constantly vomiting and completely devoid of all strength. Brennan and Chantel did the best that they could and extended family rallied to help. God bless grandmothers. Last Friday, I was summoned to the hospital, to the foothills. Chantel lay dying. She wanted to be baptized. And she wanted to be married. She and Brennan had not yet had their planned wedding. With family gathered all around, with an oxygen mask on her face, with tubes attached to her bruised, uh, fragile arms, we took a bowl of water and sprinkled her strawberry blonde hair. We baptized Chantel one week ago today in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A precious smile covered her gaunt but beautiful face. She said, can I have a towel to wipe my head? Then I did something I will never forget. With Brennan sitting on the bed and Chantel propped up on a pillow, I invited Brennan to repeat after me. Today I, Brennan, take you, Chantel, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold in joy and in sorrow, through good times and through bad, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. 
I then asked Chantel to repeat after me, I, Chantel, take you, Brennan, to be my wedded husband in sickness and in health as long as we both shall live. I then said, Brennan and Chantel, I now pronounce you husband and wife, and again invoking the triune God, I pronounce them husband and wife in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I said, Brennan, you may kiss your bride. And what happened was the most beautiful, sacred kiss that I have ever seen. The next day, Chantel went to heaven. And yesterday, just yesterday, in our chapel up there, Brennan said goodbye at the funeral to his newlywed wife. And little Isaiah said goodbye to his mama, who he would never remember. I know we did not come here today to hear a sad story and shed a little tear. We've come here today to focus on the Lord Jesus and on his suffering, but I think this backdrop is important. I just want to open my heart up to you a little bit and tell you that one of my most common complaints is why is there so much suffering in this world? Why is Chantel's story repeated multiple of thousands of times all over the world every day? Why does it seem so often that Jesus is uninvolved, uninvolved and removed from my suffering? I needed to be here today to come to this Easter service. And maybe you do too. Because it's in this service that we are reminded that Jesus is not removed from our suffering, that he is present with us in our suffering. You know the story so well, he was arrested and he was punched in the face and, and he was slapped and he was spit upon. 39 times he was lashed on his back with, with Roman cattails, with shards of metal attached, with, which just shredded his dear and precious back. A crown of thorns with grievous thorns rammed on his head, which drew blood, which flowed down onto his already bruised and bloodied face. Nails in his wrists, nails in his feet. It's interesting to me that the Bible writers don't go into the details of all the suffering that Jesus went through. We're left to imagine that. All the writers say is that they crucified him. Oh, I need this service because I am reminded that he knows he is near to the brokenhearted. In the Easter story, I'm confronted by the truth, says C.S. Lewis, that whatever game God is playing in this world, he at least is playing by the same rules, for he allows his own son to suffer more than anyone else has ever suffered. 
I think Jesus still suffers. I think he sees Chantel trying to care for her baby while she vomits. I think he sees your pain and the suffering of your loved ones that you experience. You see, the Bible says that he is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. Listen, he's touched by the feelings of our infirmities, which means he knows exactly how we feel. He doesn't want to be far removed. He wants to come close and enter into what we're going through. The story of Chantel, it's really the story of Jesus. Something beautiful happened at the graveside just yesterday. All of a sudden, it wasn't about Chantel, it was about Jesus. There was an overwhelming sense of Jesus. An overwhelming sense around the casket that Jesus was present, that he was there, that he was close, that he was giving hope, and that death is not the last word. You know, it's always only about Jesus, isn't it? He's close to you. He feels our pain. He feels our sorrow. It says, Jesus says, that his body was broken for us, but the truth is that his heart is broken for us. And I don't know about you, but I can get through what I have to get through as long as I know that he is there. He identifies with me in his suffering. Lord Jesus, thank you for being, bringing me to this place today because I need to be here. You're going to be holding in a few moments a, a piece of bread. That's God's sign to you. It's his proof to you that as his body was broken, so his heart is broken and he is close. Hold that bread, look at it, feel it, and you will take it into yourself. He loves to be close. And through the bread, he is. Who was it that told us that we would never suffer in this world? That everything would always go our way and we would always be happy? Jesus never told us that. He said, if you follow me, you will often have trial. He said, in the world, you will have tribulation. Shall I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. It is the human condition. It is the promise of Jesus that we will suffer. But he knows he's been touched by the feelings of my infirmities and he is there. Just partaking of the bread he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my heart broken for you. I am there. Shall we partake?
And now we come to the cup. Listen to the words of Jesus. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The cup is about the new covenant of the Lord Jesus. We know about Old Testament and New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant. Paramount in the New Covenant was the whole concept of forgiveness. In describing the New Covenant, the Bible says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. And so we celebrate the cup, which signifies the blood of the Lord Jesus, which fell from his broken body down his legs, down the stem of the cross, and was gathered into the Palestinian soil. The precious blood of Jesus that speaks of redemption and speaks of forgiveness. And it is a sign, the cup is, a sign of forgiveness. And I've asked Madeline and Austin to share a story about this. Several years ago, my precious niece, Karis, was coming home from work on her bicycle when she was struck in a crosswalk by a speeding vehicle going through a red light. Karis was 24 years old, and the young man who struck her was also 24. As she lay on the street, a nurse who happened to be a Christian and a retired minister cradled her in their arms and prayed over Karis as she passed from this life into the next. This was a powerful message to our family that Jesus was there. And she did indeed die in the arms of Jesus. Karis was a giving person. Everybody knew her for giving of herself in the service of others. On many Friday nights, she would make ham sandwiches and go to the east end of Vancouver and hand them out to addicts, prostitutes, and the poor. That was just Karis. That was just what she did. And even in death, she gave. Her heart is today beating in someone else's body. Her lungs were harvested to give breath to another life. Her corneas give sight. Her skin helped a burn patient. And one kidney was saved to help a renal patient. Even in death, Karis gave life. It gave great comfort to our family, and it still does. Many months later came the court case, the trial of the young man who through recklessness took the life of our precious Karis. We arrived at the courthouse not knowing what to expect. Sometimes in our legal system, there's very little information available, and there were many things we did not know. We prayed that God would give us grace and strength and that we would have the ability to represent him well and that we would have the opportunity to reflect all the things that meant so much to us about our niece. As you might imagine, this was an emotionally fraught time. We were part of a sparse audience. The young man sat up at the defense table 
with his back to us. It was a little overwhelming to look at this young man and connect him with the one responsible for all the pain and devastation in our family. During the proceedings, my sister and her husband were asked to come forward and read what's called the victim impact statement. In doing this, they talked about their only daughter, who she was, and the enormity of what they, our family, and her friends had lost. They were unaware that behind them, the young man had begun to sob. And then the moment came in the statement where my brother and sister-in-law verbally offered forgiveness to this young man. The court reporter began to cry. The judge called a short recess at the end of the statement. After the court reconvened and defense pre presented their material, there was an opportunity given to the young man to make a statement. He stood up, turned to face my sister and her husband, and gave a heart-wrenching expression of his sorrow and regret, describing how his life had been frozen since the moment of the accident and his very costly mistake. He wept deeply through 15 minutes of bearing his soul before us. And as soon as the judge completed his ruling and the official court proceedings were adjourned, my, my brother-in-law was on his feet with my sister right behind him. And they literally ran over to that young man. And they threw their arms around him. And they hugged him for a very long time as they wept together. We knew we were on sacred ground, witnessing the grace of God's forgiveness in an immensely powerful way we knew we were in the presence of one who is far greater than ourselves. The lawyers didn't know what to do or say. Seeing the transforming power of forgiveness offered and received was beyond their experience. So we went home that day with a profound and humbling insight about the grace of God and the forgiveness that he freely offered us at the foot of the cross. That forgiveness, it's sacred, it's sacrificial, it's supernatural, and it's God's grace extended to all of us. That was my niece and I had Austin and Madeline read because I couldn't have done it. <laughs> um, but it's not a story about my niece or my sister or brother-in-law, this young man. It's been amazing to see how this young man has actually become part of our family. It's beautiful. It's a story about Jesus. It's always Jesus. And the cup is about forgiveness, and, and forgiveness is hard for us. Some of you have been hurt in incredible ways. It hurts to be hurt, to be
to be rejected. But there comes a point in time when we have to let go and we have to continue to live. When you hold your cup, it's, it's, it's God's sign and his proof to you that you are forgiven. I know there's some of you in this room, you just, you're always, you feel condemned. Do you need proof? Do you need a sign? Look at the cup. Feel it. Bring it to your lips and, and drink the cup. And feel released. And feel the forgiveness of Christ. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I will remember your iniquities no more and drink in remembrance of me. Shall we partake? Amen. It's Friday morning. The news is traveling quickly across the Jerusalem streets. The Nazarene is being executed. The sun is high and hot, but there is a dampness in the air that hints of a storm to come, a foreshadow in this divine drama. This day is all about the cross. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed, but the writers of the gospel seem to be in a hurry to get us to the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus himself drives this. In the Gospel of John, he speaks of this hour, the hour in which he will be glorified. He says this only halfway into the book. An entire half of the Gospel is actually just on one week of Jesus' life. Again in John, at the Last Supper, he speaks of the hour. This time he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. But why this emphasis on Jesus' death? Why is the most significant person in world history deliberately moving events towards his own brutal execution? It's all about the cross. Even after his resurrection, the followers of Christ chose the cross as the primary symbol of their faith, not the empty tomb. It is the cross and not the resurrection that John locates Jesus' great victory, his moment of glory. You see, we can wonder in the supernatural event of the resurrection, but before we do, we must linger a while in the very humanness of his suffering. Theologians have unpacked and deliberated and debated the reasons why he had to suffer and die there are Old Testament prophecies about his death that needed to be fulfilled. There is a penalty for sin that could only be paid by a substitute who was sinless. But I also believe that this experience is one of the truest ways that we can relate to this God-man in the commonality of brokenness and suffering. I have been broken in many ways by my own sin, by the consequences of the choices that I have made, by the sins of others, 
by being in the wrong place at the wrong time, by sorrow and by loss. There are few things that tear me open more than loss. Losing a friend through betrayal, losing a dream because of fear, losing myself in a toxic relationship, losing people I love through death. More often than not, my first response to brokenness is not to run to God, but like Adam, it is to hide or to simply stop talking to him. It's not that I cease to believe in him, in his existence. It's that I don't know what to believe about him. Is he still good when everything around you looks bad? Is he still just when there is no justice to be found? Is he still present when all I feel is his absence? It's hard to relate to God to an all-knowing, everywhere-present deity sitting on a throne, keeping the world in motion. I believe in him, yes. I even believe that he cares deeply about me. But I often wonder if he could possibly understand me and my human suffering. Enter Jesus, equally man and God. His list of names and titles include man of sorrows. I can relate to that. This is not simple sadness. When you have a bad day, when your favorite team doesn't win, when you don't get a refund on your taxes, I'm thinking of a sorrow that actually breaks you. That with every breath, you feel your bruised heart pressing against the inside of your chest. With every movement, your bones ache. And with every forced smile, you feel a little nauseous. I think Jesus gets this kind of sorrow. From what was perhaps his first real glimpse of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, his sorrow begins. Sorrow so powerful that it manifests physically as he sweats drops of blood This is a rare but very real medical condition where one's sweat will contain blood. The sweat glands are surrounded by tiny vessels. These vessels can constrict and dilate to the point of rupture where the blood will then effuse into the sweat glands. Its cause? Extreme anguish. Jesus gets sorrow. I think it is our sorrow and brokenness that pulls his attention to us. I too am drawn to broken people, perhaps because you seem to be able to get at them a little quicker through their cracks. The facade that we have all spent years and years building around ourselves to convince the world, to convince our community, to convince even ourselves that we're okay is the surest way to keep our relationships shallow. To keep our theology as simply an idea and not action. And to keep God at a safe distance. I have learned in my brokenness that not everyone will understand you or stick with you. They will tire of the sorrow and want you to hurry up to the healing, to the wholeness, 
Jesus' closest friends left when he needed them the most. I have learned that people will worry if you question God or you raise a complaint against him. A full third of the Psalms are just that. And Jesus himself on the cross cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have learned that it is always better to admit that we are broken and seek godliness than to look godly and stay broken. He was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. It is by his wounds that we are healed, not by his love or his grace or his forgiveness, but by his wounds. It's all about the cross. Even as I am writing this, a family member is visiting the oncologist to find out the state of her leukemia that is stealing her life away. And a dear friend is waiting on biopsy results and I am asking God to heal their brokenness. I know its value, but I also know its pain and I want there to be a different way for God to relate with me. There is a cost to being a Christ follower. Just as there is a cost to allowing yourself to be loved, I am still learning how to do both. Because both require a level of vulnerability that is uncomfortable. To show your brokenness to the people who you love and to the God who cares and to ask for help demands humility. And that is not a popular word. Not in our world of independence and self-reliance. Again, this is not one of my spiritual gifts. You see, I am an actor by training. And I have learned to hide, to distract, to move your focus away from my cracks. But my journey must include the acceptance of my humanity. Just as Jesus came face to face with his own as he carried the cross. If you are broken this morning, you signed divorce papers this week, the doctor gave you the results that you hoped against hope that you would not receive, your daughter has decided that she doesn't love your God, your son has admitted to taking drugs, your favorite uncle fell off the wagon again, you had to file for bankruptcy. You buried your mother, or your father, or your child. You are right where God wants you to be, at the cross. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. This morning, don't look away from the pain, from your pain, or from Jesus' pain. Let his suffering bring you relief. Let his brokenness make you whole. It is the cross where he is glorified. And it is at the cross that you are healed. Do not let your suffering, your sin, your brokenness push you away from God. But let the weight of the cross 
push you into him. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 